Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Iskowitz, editor-at-large for MMM, and welcome to this edition of the MMM Podcast. On this installment of the show, we're taping remotely on a snowy day in mid-December. I've gathered a panel representing some of this industry's sharpest minds to recap some of the healthcare innovation highlights of the course of this extraordinary year. The pandemic that engulfed the world in 2020 and that led to unprecedented levels of collaboration and the discovery and development of multiple vaccines at breakneck pace also prompted innovation in many other areas of healthcare. What are the most significant advances that gain momentum, and which will we see stick around in 2021? Those are the two questions I've asked our esteemed panel to be ready to discuss. I'll introduce them now. First up is Monique Levy, who started a new position in October as Chief Commercial and Strategy Officer for the digital therapeutics firm Wobot Health, and she's also trained in clinical psychology and has experience across some of the world's most innovative data, digital health, and therapeutics businesses. Uh, prior to that, she was chief strategy officer at the Precision CNS Biotech Company, Blackthorn Therapeutics. Welcome, Monique. Thank you. Happy to be here. Next up, we have Ruchin Kansal. He started a new position uh, recently as, as well uh, as professor at <laughs> Department of Management at Seton Hall University, and he's also leading the Gerald Pacino Center for Leadership Development there. Uh, he also, uh, among his career highlights, was uh, SVP and Global Head of Strategy Digital Services at Siemens Healthineers. And uh, from 2015 to 2017, he was business, uh, excuse me, head of business innovation and transformation for Beringer Ingelheim. Welcome, Ruchin. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Welcome. And uh, next up, we have Manny Wexler. He is CEO of Advanced Informatics. Uh, he's also CEO of DocPanel, which is a telemedicine platform for radiologists uh, for use in imaging. Uh, he's also had a very long career in healthcare IT, working for uh, such health systems as Montefiore Medical Center uh, here in the uh, New York metro area. Welcome, Manny. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be here. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Francois Simon uh, is a senior faculty member in ICANN's Department of Population Health Science and Policy and professor emeritus at Columbia University Medical School. And I've had the pleasure of uh, collaborating with her on uh, several other roundtables and, uh, and projects. Uh, Francois, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I should also mention uh, that this is the same uh, panel that we gathered uh, for a roundtable discussion uh, to discuss uh, pharma's use of digital to kind of disrupt the uh, life cycle in, in pharma back in the spring. And that was before the world uh, uh, turned its attention to a, a deadly pandemic that, that reared its head uh, back in January, February. And the discussion quickly became, shall we say, obsolete. So it's a pleasure to welcome them all here again today to kind of close the loop. So, uh, Dr. Simone, let's, let's start with you. What do you think was the most uh, standout healthcare innovation trend of this extraordinary year? Right. This is no big surprise. The, everybody was saying the same way. Uh, the, the transforming trend was really telehealth. Uh, everybody knows that telehealth has skyrocketed. It's grown exponentially in 2020. But it's now plateauing or, uh, in some cases, showing a slight decline. Uh, I've looked at some of the uh, recent surveys. Forrester predicts that e-consults will exceed uh, 1 billion this year uh, due to, uh, first of all, COVID-19, but also ongoing care, uh, especially mental health needs, and, and that part of telehealth is really skyrocketing, uh, and possibly the flu season. So another survey, which is the uh, EPIC Health Research Network, showed that uh, they track uh, EHR data and they showed that volumes peaked in mid-April 
for telehealth with 69% of total visits, which was uh, huge because at that point, uh, medical, there was no, not much access to uh, medical in-person facilities. But telehealth dropped by August to only 21% of total. It was uh, higher than 2019, but uh, it dropped considerably. And another factor, I'm going to be a little bit uh, counterintuitive here, uh, another factor is that increased use of telehealth doesn't necessarily translate into a clear preference. People use it. Some people use it because they like it. Other people use it because they have to. So a health union did a survey of over 2,000 patients for chronic conditions, and they found that nearly 50% have returned this fall to in-person visits. Uh, and uh, for any, anybody who uses telehealth, they still have significant barriers. Uh, another survey, the JD Power Telehealth Satisfaction Survey, found an overall good customer satisfaction. They gave it a good core. But 52% of the respondents, and there were over 4,000 of them, faced at least one barrier. One is limited services. There's only so much you can do on Zoom. Uh, or Doximi, uh, so limited services, confusing technology, uh, technology problems with the audio or video breaking down in the middle of the visit, and a lack of awareness of cost. Uh, the, 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 the relaxation of CMS, uh, the, of CMS uh, reimbursement, etc., has not really been uh, publicized all that uh, well. And an interesting thing in the JD Power survey is that the key reason for telehealth, the key drive for the driver for it was safety, and that came ahead of convenience. People were afraid uh, to go into uh, medical facilities, etc., and that's the key reason why, if they had a choice, uh, they chose telehealth. Uh, also, different satisfaction levels for the source of telehealth, whether it is from a major vendor like Amwell, Teladoc. MD Live or from uh, providers and, and health systems. The vendor model has been compared to a randomized triage care, uh, which is not a compliment. The patients go online, they wait, wait in a queue, and they get connected to the first available doctor who doesn't know anything about them and with whom they don't have a relationship. So it's a transitional model, it's ephemeral, uh, it just doesn't go anywhere uh, in the future. In a Harvard Business Review article, David Blumenthal, the president of the Commonwealth Fund, uh, was fairly negative. He said that a, trusted, a trusting long-term patient-physician relationship is the key to good, good outcomes. And he also said that telehealth results, which uh, we all know, uh, varies across specialty. Uh, mental health is clearly the number one candidate for, uh, for telehealth, and it's been that way for quite some time. Uh, orthopedics would not be a good candidate except for maybe training for exercises. So as a result, most health systems are partnering with vendors, uh, Mount Sinai partners with Teladoc, for instance, to ensure continuity of care, to ensure that uh, patients see actually the doctors they know and they trust. So looking forward, uh, my impression is that telehealth will continue to grow, but uh, only as part of a hybrid system that includes multiple care channels, not, not as an end in itself. 
So that would be uh, my conclusion at this point. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. So a lot, a lot to be desired from from telemedicine, even even as it grew. Um, and we, we know that companies like Teladoc are still uh, looking to to find that optimal mix. Mani, as CEO of, of a, you know, a company in that space, uh, would, would you like to build on that? You know, for, for your point of, of what you feel was the most the biggest driver for 2020. Sure, uh, my pleasure. Now, certainly, you know, Dr. Simone uh, covered uh, a lot of the uh, advancements in telemedicine, which which haven't been new. Telemedicine has been around for a long time. What 2020 did. And, you know, I kind of have to look for the silver lining, you know, in a pandemic. It opened the door for telemedicine, uh, really opened the door. And what we found is uh, a little bit confirmed what we knew. Patients kind of like it and physicians don't hate it. Uh, They kind of like it as well if it's presented to them in a certain manner. The issue with telemedicine and why uh, we're seeing the return to in-personal visits beyond, you know, that uh, places and healthcare systems have reopened is because the reimbursement is not completely aligned. So if you're going to get reimbursed more for an in-person visit, it's just going to drive everyone in that factor, uh, especially from the clinical side. They're going to make the patients come in. So there needs to be an alignment with the reimbursement. So it's at least equal and in maybe ways uh, initially needs to incentivize the e-visit and the telemedicine experience so people can understand it. And it's not an all or nothing as well, uh, which you know seems to come up in a lot of discussions. It's just another tool and another way that you know patients could gain access to their clinicians when it makes sense. Sometimes an in-person visit makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and you have this other tool that's now available that can be used, and uh, it's just going to get better. Now, where I think we have seen you know, tremendous interest and expansion is in, uh, for example, for DocPanel, uh, which is a company that I'm the chief operating officer of, and it, that's providing a teleradiology, telecardiology service to imaging centers and hospitals across the country and second opinions across the world where, for example, what we saw with the pandemic is elective surgery stopped and then everyone, as things opened up, came back and pretty much overwhelmed the capacities of the health systems, overwhelmed the capacities of imaging centers. We saw mammographies that usually have to be reported within 30 days slipping to 60 days and even more. So the ability to uh, to leverage that, and this is very different than a te- you know than a you know Nighthawk service or something else that's just doing you know basic coverage. This is bringing specialists to institutions that need that help, that don't have that talent on staff, that can't recruit, or are simply overwhelmed by the volume. And we make it very simple, you know, to bring the top of the line clinicians to read those studies for them as needed on an as needed basis. Now we're the technology platform, the physicians are independent physicians, so they sign on. So think of it, I know everyone compares themselves to Uber, but it's kind of, we make it easy to move the the clinical data from the acquisition, from the modalities and make it available and provide all the tools, including post-processing and AI and whatever clinicians need to properly read those studies in a very uh, quick, time frame and return the reports to the patients if it's a second opinion or for primary reads back to the institutions that need it. This has become very interesting, especially where clinicians were furloughed because elective surgery stopped. And this first time in my 30 year career that I've ever heard of a physician 
like a radiologist, a cardiologist being furloughed because there's no volume for them, as well as a lot of these clinicians that are in a certain population, a certain age, were asked to do frontline treatment that they haven't done since medical school. Again, not a very comfortable uh, you know, scenario for you know, a certain type of clinicians that have been doing a very different type of healthcare. So there's become a lot of interest from both the clinical side uh, as well as certainly from the patient sides and from the imaging center side. And I think that type of telemedicine uh, is gonna continue because we're not through. So that's gonna continue to provide these additional services. And once we could do it internally, you can imagine you could bring additional access globally to high quality clinicians to populations that just don't have it, as well as the generic telemedicine that has been described by Dr. Simone is also going to continue because it's it's gonna take a little bit longer to kind of get back because it kind of followed the curve. That's what we saw. When things were shut down, telemedicine visits were really high because there was nothing else. And now it's leveling off. And as soon as reimbursements align, um, I think we're going to see that kind of come up and kind of be in parallel, you know, with uh, on-site visits as well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Mani. Testing slipped, as, as you mentioned, and, and in some sense, uh, you know, I think there was a New York Times piece the other day, uh, Gina Collada reporting, this was in a sense, a grand experiment in reduced utilization of, of healthcare volume. And, you know, the, the healthcare academics are now kind of studying, was that a good thing? To the extent that physicians, you know, were furloughed because of lack of volume um, and, and so on and so forth, and telemedicine kind of stepped into the breach to, to help out, um, that that was indeed a significant happening in, in 2020. So thank you for the, those comments. And, uh, you know, speaking of healthcare workers, Rishin, you have some points to make about that. Thank you, Mark. And I would fully agree with Dr. Simone and Moni that uh, telemedicine has been a big severe in the pandemic for all of us. Uh, what I would say is uh, looking at healthcare very closely, and my wife is a physician who had to quarantine herself uh, at our house for next <laughs> for last six months. Uh, one thing uh, uh, we all have to do is really celebrate healthcare and our healthcare system and our healthcare workers. I mean, we really saw the whole industry converge to solve for this pandemic globally, right? We, we saw uh, that we came together to develop the vaccine at warp speed. And we really demolished a lot of uh, barriers, the status quo that we have maintained so far, which was really refreshing. We, we embraced new technologies, whether it was mRNA or AI in uh, finding new cures. We collaborated across institutions, across geographies. We revisited our regulatory frameworks, uh, did a lot of emergency use approvals. So we, we really, you know, when the need arose, we literally shack, you know, shattered the barriers we had shackled ourselves in and did the right thing. So that's a reason to celebrate. I think also, as you were saying, on the front lines, our healthcare workers really did great. Uh, they put their lives at risk to save ours. Now, unfortunately, a lot of them lost lives too. Uh, and then we have to be grateful to them uh, but what's really paradoxical in all of this is uh, someone talked about physicians being furloughed. Not only were physicians furloughed, a lot of physicians lost their jobs. A lot of nurses lost, lost their jobs. And you would scratch your head as to why in this pandemic they're losing their jobs. And, and you know what that really exposes is how dependent we still are on a fee-for-service system. 
despite all the care, you know, talk about value-based healthcare over the last 10 years, when we literally, you know, got into an emergency situation, our economic model for healthcare just does not sustain us even today, you know, because it is fee for service. And, and you know, on top of that, the last thing that I believe this pandemic exposed for all of us this year is the capacity constraint. So, you know, when the financial crisis happened, there was a stress test done on all our banks and financial institutions. This pandemic did a stress test on our healthcare system. And, and as it did the stress test, I mean, we kind of almost burst at the seams, but have survived so far. But it gives us a moment to pause and see, are we really over-optimized? Or uh, have we really taken all of the safeguards and redundancies away? Is telemedicine the long-term solution to build that redundancy and that you know safeguard in the system? Or, or do we have to plan for something else? I mean, even today in a country like the US, it takes three days for a COVID test to come back. Three days for a COVID test to come back. Can you imagine that? My parents are sitting in India. They get the test back in six hours. Someone comes to their home takes a sample, they get the test back on their phone in six hours. Here, my wife, by the way, a frontline physician who's uh, the director for molecular testing at one of the largest hospital systems, got really sick last week, thought that she has COVID, had to go to a CVS three days later. That's where she could get an appointment to get the test. And it took three days for her test to come back. Thank God it was negative. That's the system that we have right now. So I'm not saying that it's bad. I mean, there's a lot of reason to celebrate, but it is also a time to really grapple with things that don't work and see that as an opportunity to you know, keep moving forward. So yeah, I mean, a lot of things to celebrate, some things to fix, but overall, I'm, I'm really happy you know, that we are uh, in a country where <laughs> uh, with all the crisis and all the politics uh, that we have faced, we still uh, have faith in the system. And, and you know, if, if we fall sick, I think most of us will survive. So that's a good thing and a thing to celebrate. Absolutely. And, um, you know, my, my wife is also a healthcare worker. She's a local pediatrician and she got sick uh, herself uh, recently um, and, and had to get tested. And, and thank goodness it was negative. It, it does expose, you know, the, the weaknesses in, in the system, doesn't it? I mean, if the FDA just kind of approved a flurry of, of at home over the counter tests, uh, some of them completely at home, some of them still requiring a lab to process, but we still don't have that definitive uh, COVID 19 at home test that's kind of like a pregnancy test that's cheap, that's available, that you can test every member of your family and have the confidence to go back to work or go back to school or, or whatnot. Um, so ho hopefully we'll, we'll see brighter days, uh, but definitely a lot of things to grapple with, well said, and a lot to celebrate as, as well. Speaking of that, one of the things that we saw this year was a, a greater emphasis on, on mental health of, of the country as a whole. And I think Monique has uh, something to say about that. Uh, Monique, why don't you take the baton and uh, go next? Um, I'd love to. This is um... I really appreciate all of these comments. Um, I think just connecting with some of what's been said, I, I really agree with um, the strengths of the system. I think, um, ironically, you know, we were talking about innovation and the speed of innovation in our first, when we try to do the round table. And I think I agree with you, uh, Rishan, this, the, the pandemic really showed us once and for all that when incentives are aligned and there's um, the kind of motivation alignment we can push through and do great things. I think that's really feels good that we can put to bed that idea of, you know, is, is healthcare 
just not able to move fast. When we want to, we can. So we have to just think deeper about uh, why we don't move faster when we need to. I think also, Francoise, I'm so glad that you, uh, it was so refreshing to hear your point of view on telemedicine because when you look at the investment community, it says a bit of a different story. If you were to look at the numbers and the investment, you think that we're about to go to outer space with telemedicine, but we're really not. It's, you know, it's still just like, um, it's a tool. And so I think for me, um, I've been waiting to hear a more sober kind of view. And I know some of this research is starting to show that it's a tool and it's an efficiency play, or maybe uh, it's for safety, but um, it's not solving for some of the systemic things that are missing in healthcare. And so for mental health, I think I've been watching the space with a little bit of concern because talking about this issue of capacity, I think um, when we're talking to early partners, what we're picking up is that they were at the brink to start with. And now just the wait lists and the demand and the, the speed of progression of mental health um, decline across all communities, you know, there's uh, whether it's teenagers or what's happening in maternal health is really accelerating in a negative way, really rethinking the system. I think it's exposed. I think that's a word that was just used a few moments ago. It really exposes systemic gaps in the system. Telehealth is often talked about as sort of being able to solve that. And I don't know if it's going to. I think it might help some efficiencies and some matching of people to therapists. But you know what there really is in this is a severe lack of trained therapists to be able to scale. Um, and no amount of fixing the pipes is really going to solve that. Neither will it solve for standardizing quality. So I think that, you know, again, many good things. I think we've shot ourselves that we can get on a portal, we can remember our passwords, <laughs> we can, you know, we can even figure out how to you know, troubleshoot the video and our doctors don't have horns on video and, you know, we can make this work. So I think, you know, we can get over it and we can have multiple portals and it's not a big deal. You know, we have multiple media services. So I think all of those things can be put to bed, but we have to think about capacity and quality and people can get sicker fast. Um, so we don't really have um, sort of much resilience built into the system to help people with mental health. A lot of great points there, especially the the ones about uh, putting the, uh, to, to rest the question of whether healthcare can move fast. You know, it can. It, it's proved that it can. The rise of, of telehealth, you know, was one one sign of that. Whereas the the, the reimbursement uh, laws and and the and licensure laws all of a sudden were addressed that facilitated you know access to telehealth services. Uh, and of course, there are many, many other uh, areas of innovation that that moved at, at faster pace. Uh, uh, the least of which was was the vaccine development efforts. Mark, you're also seeing that for digital therapeutics, the FDA is leaning in, CMS is leaning in. Um, there's a lot more of accept, you know, similar to what you just said, just the idea of accept acceptability and adoption of these services. It's less sort of like fringe thinking and more like true health solutions. So I agree with you even in my direct field here in, in digital therapeutics. Yeah, yeah. So, so the value proposition, so to speak, for, for these uh, digital therapeutics and things were, that were thought of as nice to have prior to the pandemic, all of a sudden, you know, have a much more, um, there's a finer point on, on the need for these things because of safety issues, you know, people couldn't go to the doctor. Uh, so these things are able to fill the breach and, and maintain those touch points with the healthcare system and, and much more. So thanks for those those comments, Monique. Um, 
you know, let's, sh shall we turn our attention to the future now? And, uh, you know, a number of you have been kind of alluding to uh, things that you think will, will stick around. Um, but I'd like to, to hear from the panel as to which innovations that, that gain traction this past year will, will really have staying power that we, we will see, you know, hang around uh, for the future. Hey, Ruchin, how, how about we start with you on that one? I think 2021 is going to be the year of taking a breath. <laughs> and then really, you know, uh, just just uh, recovering from uh, the uh, cyclone we have uh, all been in, the healthcare system has been through this year. Uh, there are many trends, I think, you know, we will certainly embrace more uh, telemedicine and digital therapeutics as tools and technologies going forward. Uh, as I look at things and I try to, you know, figure out where the long-term trend line is, uh, so not just 2021, but 2030, 2050, uh, maybe 2100. Uh, what has been interesting through this year uh, is uh, on one side, we have been following the news of vaccine and the pandemic globally and how everyone is addressing that. On the other side, it has been really interesting to see that uh, we have made quite a few strides in space exploration. NASA announced a competition to figure out sustainable economic models to live on moon. Russia declared that Venus is its backyard. <laughs> and, and, you know, of course, uh, Elon Musk is uh, sending, you know, quite a few rockets in the sky. And then everyone from Morgan Stanley to PricewaterhouseCoopers are talking about the space fund and how to invest in space. Now, if space is the next final frontier after uh, 1986 when, you know, <laughs> William Gibson's book came out uh, and then we are getting so close to it. The biggest challenge to space exploration, as I see it, is that human bodies are not built for extraterrestrial life. So how do we reconcile for that? So on one side, space exploration, human bodies are not built for extraterrestrial life. On the other hand, I'm seeing mRNA, I'm seeing CRISPR, I'm seeing genomics, I'm seeing uh, Google figured out the uh, protein structure. Uh, there are molecular machines, there's miniature med tech, et cetera, et cetera. And there are technologies today that if we adopt, if we move away from Darwinian system of evolution and we start to adopt those technologies in our body, we can actually live an extraterrestrial life. So for me, this becomes really, really very exciting. And I'm almost calling it the fifth industrial revolution where, you know, adapting to extraterrestrial environments through health technology will be the long-term trend. And, and I don't say that because, you know, that's interesting. I say it because it is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I do see health technology has the power to make it possible. And, and I do see, you know, quite a bit of investment happening in that space. And, and I think that'll be a very, very interesting trend to follow. And uh, just to wrap it up, uh, we all talked a lot about telemedicine on this call, right? Telemedicine as a tool. What is interesting is uh, telemedicine actually came from NASA. Telemedicine hmm. was developed so that physicians on planet Earth could consult with astronauts. Mark, can I make a comment? Or of course. So I love this idea, and sometimes I joke around about, you know, it's time to move on to another planet. But what I'm struggling with is this pandemic has, and especially working in the mental health space for so many years, like we, we barely know how to live on this planet as humans. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really struggling with why it is that we can put people 
uh, and we're talking about going to Venus and we still cannot be fully actualized human beings. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a, it's that, just a that's a life. Like how much mental health problems we have, how my teenage kids that are starting, 46% of adolescents are facing mental health problems, um, that, you know, maternal health, is still pathology. I mean, we just haven't figured it out here. How can we speed up thinking there? I, I know some really brilliant people are, are creating computational psychiatry, and I think we're going to see a new generation of drugs there. You came from a company that's you know, working as a frontier there. Yeah, many companies are going to be doing great things in the next 10 years, but still, we're so behind. I mean, NASA, I remember talking about telemedicine in 2000 when we were like when is it going to take off and it's taken us 20 years to be pushed through a pandemic to make 50 percent of people use it how can we just be healthier people living on this planet this is very worrying to me yeah no i mean it's not true i mean i would say you are basically uh raising an age-old question right uh, if you look at when uh, the first ships left Portugal or Spain to explore the Eastern world. It's not that, you know, the, that Spain and Portugal had solved for all of those problems. Uh, and, you know, uh, they say necessity is the mother of all invention. I say curiosity is the mother of all exploration. <laughs> As human beings, we are curious creatures and, and that's why we explore. And we have done exploring planet Earth and now some of us will go and explore uh, space. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how advancement happens. So not that we have solved everything here and there's a lot of work to be done here. And maybe in the future, the haves and have nots will be the people who are here and the people who exit here. <laughs> so we'll see how society unfolds and how things uh, resolve. A lot of work to be done on both fronts, frankly, and a lot more to be done on planet Earth. And that's why I said, you know, as I project to 2030, 2050 and 2100, not 2021, because 2021, I do believe uh, that mental health is something that we really have to focus on <laughs> uh, because that's the mass problem, not not the uh, not the you know luxury of exploration that a lot of us or some of us have. Uh, thank you. That was really well said. Absolutely. Thank you for taking a, a historical approach there, uh, Rushin, and uh, a futuristic one as well, Monique. Since you you know we're, we're speaking on the topic of mental health and and the existing yet to be fulfilled uh, need there. Um, what does that look like in, in 2021? Well, I don't know about the, I think one of the areas that we're very excited about is this technology that we've been building out. Um, relational agents, you know, the early testing and builds were done and started 15 or so years ago, coming out of NIT, MIT. And we've built our own proprietary technology that is on a relational agent, it is text-based, a conversational agent, and it drives our CBT-based therapy. And this is really a truly scalable solution. And what it does is it enables us to provide not just the content in psychotherapy, but also the process that you have to go through to actually do the modulation and go through the different steps at the moment of need. So I'm really excited about this technology that will we'll be able to start bringing back the working alliance um, that's needed to advance therapy. Dr. Simone talked about um, trust earlier so we think that this is a really important part of digital therapeutics, that you really can't get this promise of CBT or digital therapeutics without introducing this working alliance, which relational agents will be able to do. So we've tested this. Um, we now have it in various products. Um, 
we've tested our working alliance and huge samples. Um, so it's extremely promising that we'll be able to use this as a basis of being able to, again, bring scaled solutions to people. Great, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned this text-based um, functionality driving your um, CBT cognitive behavioral agent. So we, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you count in the same category, but self-service technologies, chatbots, you know, that have really been pressed into service over the last uh, 10 months, you know, and, and how many of us have kind of stopped to, to think about the AI that's driving, you know, all of that and all of the data visualizations, you know, that we've seen over the last 10 months, but uh, really interesting applications for, for data uh, that, that show a lot of promise, you know, go, going into the new year. So thank you for that. Um, now, I know, uh, Dr. Simone, you have some, just as part of your, um, you know, outlook for, for next year, uh, you, you touch a little bit on mental health. So how about if you go next? I, I totally agree with, uh, with Monique, first of all, and that's not going to get solved in a uh, uh, next year that um, telehealth is not a magic uh, solution it doesn't it doesn't um, uh, solve systemic problems a lot of academics now are looking at social determinant of health and the inequities between the uh, you know uh, wealthy and uh, underserved populations which have grown and, and across ethnic uh, groups which have grown a lot uh, in uh, 2020 uh, we see that as continuing in 2021 uh, to get away to to do what uh, Russian did and get away for, from healthcare for a while. Uh, I'd like to comment on education, which is uh, the, also a field that uh, Russian is in. Uh, I think there's going to be a very long period of recovery in education. There are more and more articles now for the children. Uh, about something called learning loss uh, in 2020, and that's a whole generation, a whole cohort of children who have had uh, inadequate, let's put it this way, um, conditions to, to learn, uh, some in crowded homes, uh, not, uh, others with in, uh, inadequate access to technology, etc. And then the field that uh, I and Roshan uh, know even better is higher in education. Uh, keep in mind the impact, especially in the STEM area, in science, uh, medicine, etc., of the fact that inter international students were not able to come to the U.S., that, 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 uh, etc. Uh, I see uh, reported losses from tuition, etc., to university of something like $50 million per institution uh, in 2020. Uh, hiring freezes, uh, whereas we absolutely need those uh, those faculty uh, cost reduction, etc. And um, as uh, Rushin may, may agree with me, we've been doing Zoom lectures forever now, uh, and they don't absolutely don't uh, uh, equal in-person uh, interaction. You don't have the campus connection for students. You don't have the uh, uh, interaction in in the classroom and uh, think of medical education, uh, how can you do lab classes uh, remotely? That's not, just not possible. So there's a whole year which is, one, partly lost for students in terms of quality of education, and which has severely damaged uh, universities and colleges. So that's one yeah. comment. Uh, the second comment, which is more, that's the negative side. The second comment, which is more the positive side, 
uh, is that what we're seeing now, and it's accelerated under COVID, is uh, a massive infotech investment in healthcare. There's now a convergence. It's almost not two industry sectors that we, we have with infotech uh, and, uh, and healthcare. Uh, every uh, infotech from Google to Apple to uh, Microsoft, etc., is acting possibly as an enabler, but maybe as a disruptor of healthcare. So uh, Amazon started with pill pack acquisition uh, for one billion. Now they're all getting into uh, uh, data aggregation. Uh, Amazon and Microsoft are developing cloud-based services to help hospitals with health data. Uh, uh, Google has just launched the health study app uh, focused on respiratory illnesses like COVID-19. It's partnering with Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital uh, to allow patients enrolled in clinicals to self-report uh, and to answer survey questions. Amazon has uh, launched the Amazon Health Lake uh, that centralizes and structures data from different sources. Uh, Microsoft is partnering with United Health with a tool called Protect Well, which is really a self-triage tool for daily uh, triage of employees. So, and I, I will end with one thing, which is on the negative side, cybersecurity. Uh, I don't think it's going away. And I don't think the, the hacking is going away uh, anywhere. <laughs> uh, we've had mounting uh, cyber attacks uh, through 2020. Uh, it started a long time ago in 2017. The first massive ransomware was uh, called WannaCry, you may remember, and it spread worldwide. Uh, it brought to a stop the UK uh, national health system. It disrupted over 80 hospitals. Now this fall, uh, one of these cyber attacks shut down the computer systems of universal health services. They have 400 hospitals and behavioral clinics in the US and the UK. Um, health data are a key target for cyber attacks because they are extremely valuable and the loss of data may not be apparent uh, as fast as banking data for instance banking data you you know right away that you've been attacked uh, health data some some claims may uh, be reimbursed six months later so it takes a very long time to uh, to to see the attack and to correct it so uh, I'd, I'd like to know what the other speakers' opinions are on, on cybersecurity and if we are moving towards solutions or not. Yeah, I think, uh, th thank you for that, Francois. I think that was a great rundown. And in, in terms of cyber attacks, I remember, you know, talking about that back with, with you all back in the spring. That was one of the few things that, you know, was, was still a problem then and, and continues to be a problem. Uh, but Mani, you know, given your long um, you know, career on the IT side, I'm sure dealing with a lot of the cyber issues. Well, what's your view on, on that uh, in terms of getting a handle uh, on, on some of the new cyber attacks on, on health data we're seeing and, and give, give us your outlook for, uh, for next year? So, um, well, well, first, you know, I'd like to comment on, you know, what the prior, <laughs> prior speakers spoke about and especially Dr. Simone. I mean, certainly, you know, we saw tremendous changes in not only in health tech, but in ed tech, uh, as was mentioned. And it was kind of remarkable uh, because, you know, God forbid this pandemic would have happened, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been a completely different impact on our population. Um, Zoom 
and all of these other virtual meetings aren't aren't great and they're not a replacement, but they certainly held us together for quite a while. And think about the future, no more snow days. I mean, what the <laughs> impact? Kids are gonna lose, you know, coming from a snowy day in New York, they can be on Zoom and I hope that doesn't happen. I hope they still get their snow days. But anyway, as kind of a data scientist, uh, I'm very excited and what people don't, uh, don't realize because it's not spoken about. The only way that any type of vaccine was able to get developed was because a lot of the data blocking regulations and everything else that prevents us from sharing data were kind of suspended and removed. And once that opened up, the ability to model and the ability to release massive computing power and AI globally, really what helped achieve you know, this, you know, this vaccine in record time. Uh, it could not have been done in the old way. It really couldn't. And, you know, technology is the tool that enabled it and helped it. You know, of course, brilliant minds and everyone else working together, but certainly we, we have to look at that technology and that opened up again the door. And what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing, hope you know, uh, and anticipating and I'm really uh, excited about, you know, CMS with their new anti-blocking uh, rules and regulations you know, when we open up and we start sharing data, of course, in a HIPAA compliant, secure way. And we can do that. We can we can do that. Let's let's talk about, you know, uh, you know, the truth behind the cyber. The, the reason why we're vulnerable is because every healthcare organization is trying to be um, and recruit, you know, cyber scientists to protect their individual organizations. This is not the core competency. This is something that shouldn't be handled hospital by hospital. Um, we will fail in that manner. You cannot, these, there are not enough uh, cyber and security um, experts out there. And when they're recruited, they're recruited to far more interesting um, and higher paying positions than working for your local healthcare hospital. So this is something that I would say we need to share on, you know, there, there's no competition there. You know, everyone needs to be protected and everyone wants to keep running and nobody wants to go through, you know, any type of these ransomwares where your database and, and your EMR are locked up and your healthcare stops, because let's face it, we can't go back to paper. It's not gonna work. So this is something that we should all collaborate on across the board to protect our organizations. Only with that type of power, where we actually get on the same page, can we protect ourselves for the cyber threats that are going to happen it's it's not a if it's a when and as long as we try to do that individually you know we will fail this is something that we need to wake up and collaborate on and put our heads together that way we'll be able to recruit the best you know experts in that and kind of create an umbrella around the healthcare systems to protect us while allowing for the sharing that's required for research and development and really for population health and everything else that we're trying to do because the data is the key and we need to figure out a way to do that in a really compliant manner and in a secure fashion but also to open up the data for uh, us to be able to succeed and continue to move forward and the worst thing that can happen is we lock back down we go back into our silos and figure until you know the next pandemic you know it's like okay mission accomplished let's go back and you know, to the way it was yesterday. What we should do is push forward and continue and appreciate what can be accomplished when we release technology and data and work together 
and continue to do that and drive that both as a healthcare community and also on the technological component. It's it's not, and I, I say that a lot, it's not a technological limitation. We can see already what the cloud computing systems can do from Google to Amazon to Microsoft to everyone. They can do remarkable things. It's our culture that is not incorporating that and doing it in and pushing forward to really demand the security, to demand the sharing, and for the best for our populations. And that can be global as well. And it should be global, providing that type of access. So that's that's my outlook. You know, when we work together, we're better. And and we can do it if we collaborate in certain fashions to protect the uh, the privacy and the rich data that we're starting to collect in healthcare, which is far more complex than FinTech, far more complex, far more interesting, um, and far harder to do institution by institution. It has to be, you know, almost a, you know, like a national effort. Okay, yeah. I mean, a lot of these issues, uh, right. you know, the, the most significant pandemic innovations of 2020 and how they will spur us on to bigger and better things, uh, you know, like DNA sequencing, you know, how we sequenced the, the, the virus and then that kind of uh, led to the development of the vaccine in, in record time. Uh, data sharing, you know, that, that, that you said was really instrumental in enabling that, that process are things that are going to be, you know, ongoing elements of MMM's coverage, you know, moving forward. That actually opens us up then. I didn't even touch on what, what's here to stay, which is the sensors. The sensor technology is, is, is out of control. It's moving very fast. We're seeing commercial vendors like Apple releasing FDA-validated components from SPO2 to the cardiac monitoring in a commercial watch. That's the beginning. That's, that's really the beginning. It's just giving us a taste of what the future is like. And that's, if you want to talk about, you know, big data sets and that require huge data lakes and processing power to make sense of, it's that type of technology and it's that type of sensors that are going to be able to d drop so much information that will really help us tune the fidelity of teaching personalized, you know, of, of, of uh, treating patients. It will make personalized medicine really possible, but we need to work together. Collaboration. It's a, it's a great, great point to end on. I want to thank everybody for, you know, explaining how 2020 exposed the weaknesses of the health system, uh, as well as the bright spots and the causes for celebration, you know, from mental health to telemedicine and telemental health, from health data liquidity and uh, digital therapeutics to the ongoing disruption by Google, Amazon, and Apple, to human space exploration. Uh, that was a very cool, uh, stimulating conversation indeed, and I want to thank you all for this. Again, thank you for having all of us, Mark. This this is always such an esteemed panel uh, that you know jogs so many you know interesting thoughts. It's it's always very refreshing to be part of these conversations. Thank I you. agree. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everybody. My my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, I want to thank uh, everybody out there for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed this uh, year-end wrap as much as I did, uh, please like us. Please subscribe to our uh, show and help others discover the show. Uh, well, that'll do it for another episode of the MMM podcast. We wish everybody a happy and safe uh, 2021. And uh, we'll see you next time on the MMM podcast. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.